Today's episode is brought to you by College Backer, the easiest way to save for college with the help of family and friends. Go to www.collegebacker.com slash motherbirth to get signed up for a college savings plan for your child that your loved ones can donate directly to. College Backer will add $10 to your initial contribution exclusively for motherbirth listeners. Welcome to Motherbirth. We help women awaken the confidence that is already within. This is a space for vivid, inspiring birth stories, meaningful advice from guest experts, and honest exploration of what it means to become a mother. Hey there, it's Lara from Mother Birth. Thanks so much for tuning in. I wanted to say before you start this episode, I recommend going back one episode and listening to episode 68. This will be uh, part two of our series of our interviews at the American College of Nurse Midwifery Conference, which we will call ACNM. So if you go back, you'll be able to hear from three other midwives sharing their story. Um, but Melissa and I had the opportunity to go to Savannah, Georgia and attend this conference um, this May. And it was a great opportunity for us. We really just sat at a table and a couple of mics and did what we do with you guys every week. Except for we asked mid- midwives to let us listen to them and let us hear their stories. We asked them to share their personal story, their birth story, or maybe even their birth work story. In this episode, it was definitely in keeping with the theme of the conference, which was the soul of midwifery. Each of these women have had a longer career in midwifery and given it to really different kinds of passions. The first midwife you're going to hear from worked most of her career in her hometown in rural Maine, where she got to wear a lot of different hats and have a lot of different roles that really expanded into her becoming one of the forefront teachers of midwives in the United States, um, both through um, scholastic books and also training programs. And then she's really now spending the end of her midwifery career mentoring and kind of giving back to the souls of midwives who are just starting, people like me. Next, you'll hear from a woman who I think has, in some ways, achieved something that I never would have thought possible, but is something that I dream about, which is that every woman in a hospital would get the opportunity to see a midwife. And she happened to do it in all places in the Bronx in New York. So listen to her interesting story about that. And lastly, you'll hear from a midwife who really has kind of given her career to serving what some people might call women in the margins or the least of these, um, whatever your framework is around for people who really need great care, who don't often have many barriers to getting it. We talk a little bit about our favorite subjects, which are the postpartum transition um, and um, anxiety and how, how we kind of see changes in midwifery care in the modern era. We hope you guys enjoy. Again, as a reminder, this is at a conference, so there's going to be a lot of background noises and talking. So bear with us and kind of let your ears adjust to the audio. Hey, everybody. Um, we're still here at ACNM talking to amazing midwives. And as we've had many moments and uh, sharing stories with women, I'm having a very out-of-body moment meeting um, this midwife because I've read her textbooks. I've known people who've known her and have really, really appreciated the things she's given to midwifery as a midwifery student. So would you please introduce yourself? Hi, my name's Nell Tharp, and I am a midwife from Midcoast, Maine. So now tell us a little bit about when you became a midwife and kind of how you started down that path. Sure thing. So my journey to midwifery started when I was about three and my mother was pregnant with her three, four, five, six, seventh child. And she um, had a stillborn. The baby had a cord accident at about seven months and died. Uh, They did not induce her. She had to wait for the onset of labor. And we had made plans to 
care for this baby together because the other children were in school and I was the only one who would be at home. Yeah. And so um, it was it was something that, you know, at that age you're not ready to understand death. Mm -hmm. So how do, how do babies die before they're born? And it left a, a long-lasting impression on me. Um, it was followed two years later by the birth of my sister, who was born prematurely and required resuscitation. And I grew up with a story of her birth and being resuscitated with an intact cord so that she would have oxygen from the placenta during the resuscitation. And she was brought home in an incubator. And wow. so she was the baby in the glass box. Mm -hmm. Old days, old incubators, they were, yeah, glass boxes. And you were five? Years. And at that point I was five. Yeah. And so fast forward to um, my first birth where I uh, was at a very traditional hospital in the late 70s where they still used delivery rooms, delivery tables. Um, I had an uh, unmedicated, non-interventionist birth. Up wow. to the point where I went to the delivery room and against my will and against what they had stated they would do, they literally strapped me down with leather restraints. It was um, a, a betrayal. Mm -hmm. um, fortunately, they were very busy, and so once they handed me my baby, they kind of left me alone, and um, I loved being a mother. Uh, that was followed by a second birth that was another non-interventionist birth at another hospital where the first thing I said was, I'd do that every day if I could. So a lovely quick birth, uh, a much bigger baby, um, yeah. and all was well. And at that point, um, I was working labor and birth, had mm -hmm. been... Um, started in nursing school, worked labor and birth through nursing school. We had a great co-op program. Oh, that's cool. And there were home birth midwives, both certified nurse midwives and what were then termed lay midwives mm -hmm. in the area. And I started doing um, birth work with the home birth midwives and birth photography and childbirth education, all working you labor just put and on delivery. All the hats. <laughs> I had my third baby um, by an emergency C-section, part of my midwifery education, a foot and a knee breach. Oh my goodness! Um, with a very fast labor, wow. and never looked back. And I I debated about whether to go uh, to midwifery school or whether to do office-based women's care because mm -hmm. continuity was really what I was striving for, mm -hmm. and. Um, Babies just kept falling into my hands. Yeah. And people would, would put a call bell on at change of shift and someone say, oh, now go check on her. And so I would run in and there would be another baby. And so I finally said, okay, I quit. I'll do this. I got the message. Um, <laughs> I went to midwifery school in Brooklyn at SUNY Downstate. Okay. A um, little bit of a trial by fire when you've been working in a, in a community hospital and attending home births with home birth midwives. Then to go into a much larger city practice. It was in Brooklyn, mm -hmm. so Kings County Hospital and Woodhull Hospital and Mental Health Center. Um, it was good to be able to go into, you know, a high-volume, high-risk setting and just be able to function. Mm -hmm. And so that was, that was it was good education. Um, I loved the model there. It was stressful, but um, I think it's always stressful. And then I moved to Midcoast, Maine and opened a private practice out of the emergency room of our 17-bed hospital. Oh, wow. 
So I did full scope midwifery care. So um, mothers, babies, women's health care from 12 to 87. Um, and did non-interventionist birth using a home birth model in our little tiny hospital. Mm-hmm. So we had two nurses who were always on call with me, and one would come in for the labor, the second one would come in for the birth, wow. and then she would stay for the recovery. Um, I live in a small community, so I saw my clients everywhere, mm-hmm. at school, at the grocery, um, walking down the street. So I you, that continuity of care just extends. You see their babies daily, weekly. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and there was a need. I did well baby care. Um, so immunizations, checkups mm-hmm. uh, through school age. Um, I then was asked if I would assist in surgery by the general surgeon because there was a need for that. And mm-hmm. so that's when I added the additional credential of a, an RN first assistant. Wow. And that, that ended up providing some real wonderful continuity of care. So my women who had breast masses, I would be able to go in with them for their surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, I became better at diagnosing gallbladder problems, mm-hmm. and um, it became a real important part of the continuity of care. So I did a full-scope practice that was a dual practice simultaneously. So I was on call at that point one out of every two days for both specialties simultaneously. Okay, so you didn't split your days. No. <laughs> no, way, to, no way to stay sane that way, I yeah. guess. Wow. So, I mean, what a unique model of care to be able to provide to women in your practice. I've never heard of that. I mean, it's obviously like a special relationship. And for people listening, they also know that first assist is something you're very passionate about and very knowledgeable about imparting those skills specifically to midwives and what that looks like. So do you want to kind of share, was it from that, that kind of came from that or... When did you decide to start kind of teaching that skill? Yeah, so first assist was something I was doing primarily in general surgery, but also in OBGYN surgery and orthopedic surgery. Mm -hmm. Um, And there were programs at ACNM about first assist. It was just starting, but the, the available text at that time was all about the regulations about it. So what could you do in what state? Mm -hmm. So I um, wrote a guide to first assisting for midwives, which was a clinical text Mm -hmm. that was specifically about the actual skill set. And I used that for the classes that I started to teach, and I taught them at ACNM meetings and then freelance across the country. Mm -hmm. Um, And ACNM then approached me about combining the two texts to have just what's currently the ACNM text. Um, which is now in its second edition. Yeah, that's a, such a great resource. It's been a personal resource for me, but also I think for people who aren't aware listening, it's a skill that is definitely within our scope of practice, but some people just don't have an access point to, whether that's learning the skill or learning exactly what you're saying, the actual breakdown of what you are assisting with, kind of extending your knowledge to the surgical room. Um, and so for people listening that are women who see midwives, that's a lot of now, now is very commonplace that your midwife would be able to continue with you into to surgery, which I think is such an amazing opportunity. It is. And what I found, there's many midwives who are really committed to physiologic birth and have resistance to going into the OR in greater than a supportive role. Mm-hmm. And yet when they learn the skill set and realize that they can provide great reassurance by really overseeing what's happening during the baby's birth and they can advocate for delayed cord clamping they can advocate for early um, skin to skin they can advocate for the type of closure that the woman wants Mm -hmm. 
it really provides that continuity and especially after the birth they can provide information about what occurred they can help the woman process the reasons that she needed a c-section and come to terms with the events that occurred how they occurred why they occurred and where she goes from here um, and so it brings midwifery into the OR versus having the midwife get acculturated to the OR. And I think that's a really important piece for women because the operating room can be a very frightening experience because it's so clinical. Mm -hmm. and, and it's clinical for excellent reasons, but those excellent reasons are not mutually exclusive from warm, compassionate care. Yes, And the midwifery piece can bring that into the setting. Absolutely, especially when we look at kind of where we are in the United States with the number of cesarean births, but also just with people who are, you know, I think about this, um, my doctoral projects in identifying women who had traumatic birth and helping them to kind of find avenues to work through that, integrate it into their life. And for a lot of women, cesarean birth becomes that, the definition of traumatic birth for them is cesarean birth. And so... They, their anxiety, their um, trauma continues as they try, they're thinking of their second birth, if it will be a cesarean or not. And I think, you know, these things that you're sharing is, are so important in the sense of if cesarean birth is the birth that you need to have, then there are ways that you can have someone, like you're saying, someone in there that is looking out for you and taking care of the things that you can have preferences and choices on that might not be the case if you don't have that type of provider present. Yes. And... There are studies that have demonstrated that the more a woman is engaged in decision-making of the things where she is able to make a decision, mm -hmm. so making a decision that a cesarean is necessary is part of what a woman's choice is, mm -hmm. um, but also the small things. Does she have music? Does she have delayed cord clamping? Mm -hmm. Does she have her partner right with them? Does she have a clear drape so that she can see the baby emerge? Um, those things can decrease the level of trauma when a C-section is unexpected. Absolutely. And so, you know, that really becomes an important piece of how we provide quality care that meets the needs of women. So how long have you been a midwife? I've been a midwife since 1986. That's when I became certified, and I started in birth work, uh, let's see, 1979. So what are some of the major changes you've seen over your career in midwifery? Well, the advent of fetal monitors, oh. uh, ultrasound. I practiced at a time where you sat with a hand on a tummy with a fetoscope on your head and a pencil and paper. Mm -hmm. um, so that was a big change. Um, we routinely did delayed cord clamping in the practice where I was, so that's always been part of my practice. Certainly there's an increase in the number of tests and the number of choices that women have to make, um, which really puts a lot of uh, responsibility on women rather than simply embracing a physiologic process. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't have a judgment about that. It's just, it's just the facts. one of the differences that's mm -hmm. there. Um, and I think there's been a shift, a continued shift in two directions. Um, one about recognizing physiologic birth mm -hmm. and the other in still treating pregnancy as a medical condition. Mm -hmm. And they're kind of occur parallel, so it really varies with the system in which you practice. Mm -hmm. um, I was very fortunate to be in a system that allowed uh, 
physiologic birth practice. We did a lot of water births mm -hmm. um, and had good support for uh, non-interventionist birth. We didn't offer any epidurals in the hospital where I practice, so I've never uh, done a birth with someone with a regional anesthetic. Oh, um, very little uh, analgesia. Mm -hmm. It just that was the patient population. Mm -hmm. um, routine mother-baby care, and going into some of the settings now, um, I did a clinical refresher uh, a couple of years ago just to maintain my skills and make sure that I stayed relevant um, as I do the work that I do, um, and I, lo I love the work. Um, there's a, a much different level of engagement with clients now. Mm -hmm. There's so much more information available. Mm -hmm. um, and that part's exciting. The other big change is the lack of time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, routine prenatal visits for me were an hour for a new OB and 30 minutes for a repeat. Mm -hmm. um, and everyone got a belly massage as part of their prenatal visit. Mm -hmm. The goal was to get to know the baby as well as the mom. I firm believe that when you speak to the baby during the birth, they'll come towards a known voice mm -hmm. and they will feel confident. Mm -hmm. And I believe having mothers and babies feel confident really enhances um, birth outcomes. Yes, absolutely. I think that that is something we definitely hear. You know, we collect stories of women. That's what we do. And I think... Women who have, again, and we talked a little bit about this, it's not what the outcome was or what the details of what events occurred. It's how they felt about their role in the process and also how they felt about the role of people taking care of them. And the reality is, you know, we, ha we have a large opportunity to really help women find that inner confidence and to really start identifying their intuition. And I think that happens for a lot of women in that process. Um, whether, And I do think it happens a lot with becoming a mother, but also as they engage in their own health as an individual so we grow up as a child and we have a guide for our health our parents hopefully um and then you know as we kind of go out on our own then we are looking to and now like you're saying some people look to the internet or to outside sources but they still are coming back to a provider who has that opportunity to kind of direct that intuition and i think that birth is such a opportunity for internal transformation mm -hmm. it for many women it's a transformational event it's not about moving the baby from inside to outside um, it's about opening to the baby and giving birth both to the baby and to yourself as a mother. And even if it's not your first child, you're giving birth again mm -hmm. um, to a new baby and you're a different mother. And, and really plumbing the depths of your strength mm -hmm. um, and finding resources so that you can, can bring those to parenting. Yeah. Um, it's not just the birth, it's just, it's just the beginning. And I, that's one of the reasons I'm so passionate about birth and so passionate about midwifery. And, mm -hmm. and the other big change I've seen, of course, is many more midwives um, in practice. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel like midwives have such an um, innate ability to be with women that allows women to be mm -hmm. when they're in labor. Mm -hmm. And that that allows women to be whoever they need to be in that labor and embrace themselves mm -hmm. um, in a loving way. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's such an important part, particularly when we talk about um, fractured families, mm -hmm. the more work that we can do to build women's resilience from within mm -hmm. will allow them to engage better with their babies and 
and and weather the challenges of parenting. Right. And I think that's so so valuable and to like you're saying it's you're trying to be a steward of that opportunity by kind of you're opening yourself to let this woman be and helping her open herself up. I think that's really beautiful and um, something that I've seen you are all, you do that for midwives as well. So tell people kind of like how you're engaged with the midwife community is so so I'm not in clinical practice any longer. I, I love sleeping at night. I wake up every morning smiling, so happy. I'm like, "Oh, I love my life." Um, I really enjoy sleep. I will say that it took me years before I slept through the night. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a lot of call for a lot of years. And now my role is to midwife midwives. Mm-hmm. And I take that very seriously. I, um, I write, I teach, I do mentoring. I have the same style of practice that I had when I was in practice. So if a phone call came into my office, it was to come to me unless I was actively seeing a client. And um, that was a concept that was hard for people to understand. But uh, the email address for my business is my personal email. Um, I respond to everything myself. Um, I believe in that connection being what helps us grow. Mm -hmm. And that everybody has something to bring to the table. There are a lot of ways to be a midwife. Mm -hmm. They're not all about birth. Um, I certainly had a very busy GYN practice. Um, and so helping midwives find who they are as a midwife and trust their inner midwife Mm -hmm. um, to come forward is really part of what I like to do. Um, You know, upcoming, I'm teaching workshops in Maine. Uh, I still teach at uh, Jefferson, which is a merger between Philadelphia University and Thomas Jefferson University. Mm -hmm. Teach continuing education there. Um, and I'm looking forward to putting on some um, new workshops in the upcoming year and really having a focus on um, midwifery wellness and uh, resilience. Well, thank you so much for taking that next step with your career. I think that that is something that I'm learning so much as a student as you watch women give back to midwifery and just being so humbled by their, the unique thing, not a lot of people know this about midwifery specifically, is when women who select to teach midwife students do it from their heart. Um, there's even, I feel like very little people are compensated well, <laughs> if at all. And so the majority of it is from that, that, that energy of someone gave this to me and someone taught me and is now for me to give to someone else. And you said that yesterday and it just really resonates for me both as a midwife who practices and also as a midwife who midwife midwives. <laughs> I think that it's that that thing where it's if I've if I have taken something good from the world, it is then to me to share. And so yes. I appreciate you really owning that in this season of your life. Um, we've been asking everyone, you have a captive audience of women, our community, what would you say to a woman, um, whether it's about the motherhood transition or just about um, from a midwife to a woman, what would be advice you would give about growing into the identity of um, mother? Growing into the identity of a mother? Mm-hmm. Oh, boy. Um, take cues from your child. Mm. You know, children don't have a lot of filters. Right. And make every moment count. Life is short. There are no guarantees. Everything is about relationship. All the other things can be managed. Um, I... I 
work my life around my children and my grandchildren, and I actually receive a lot of flack from some of my friends about it. Mm. And my answer is, that's what I want to do. This is who I am. You don't need to like it. It's okay. And to be there for children without making them be the center of attention, Mm -hmm. um, and to take time for yourself. You know, I think women are socialized to meet other people's needs, Mm -hmm. and it's perfectly fine to set clear boundaries and to adhere to them and say, oh, that's a lovely idea. I'm so sorry I won't be able to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, I hope you'll ask me again. Yeah, I think that's so valuable. We live in a yes culture where if you're not there participating, you don't exist. And so I really appreciate that message for sure. So thank you again so much for sharing with us. Oh, this has been delightful. I really appreciate the opportunity. Of course. Now we're going to share a little more with you about this week's sponsor. Have you ever been just so intimidated by the thought of saving for your kid's college education? It just feels like a nightmare. It feels like something that we're thinking about too late and there's not going to be enough time. There's not going to be enough money. Well, there's this incredible new resource called College Backer, which is basically like a GoFundMe, but for your kid's college. So instead of having to save everything by yourself, you can enlist the support of the family and friends that also love your kids. I'm actually going to share a small clip from our conversation that we had with the CEO of College Backer. Her name is Abby Chow. And if you want to hear the full conversation, you can check out episode 68 that we aired on July 30th. There are tons of people who want to help you save for college, you know, so as a parent, oftentimes it can feel um, very intimidating, as you said, and even isolating, because when you go and do all this research, you're sort of doing it on your own, and you kind of feel like you need to figure it out on your own and save on your own. But the reality is that there are so many people in your life that want to be part of uh, this this process and want to actually support your child along along the way, whether it's, you know, the grandparents or aunts and uncles, or even just friends and colleagues, um, you know, when they come to the early birthday parties, for example, you know, they, a lot of times folks will realize that, you know, the kid is going to get bored of a toy or a set of clothes very quickly. um, And they want to actually be able to give you a more meaningful gift. So College Backer is all about facilitating that. This is an amazing resource for you, whether you have little young ones or whether your kids are older and you feel like it's too late, you can get started saving now and really accelerate that growth with the contributions of family and friends. So head over to www.collegebacker.com slash motherbirth. And they are offering a $10 match on your initial contribution exclusively for motherbirth listeners. So make sure to use that link so that you can get that contribution from College Backer. And now we're going to head back to our inspiring conversations with the midwives at ACNM. Hey everyone, we're still here at ACNM. I am sitting here with Denise, and Denise is a midwife from the Bronx, and we um, are excited to hear what midwifery is like for you in the setting that you work in, and how you got into midwifery in the first place. So tell us a little about yourself, and then we'll we'll go from there. Sure. Um, my name is Denise. As uh, Melissa said, I'm up in the Bronx. I work in a large city hospital that has about 16 midwives, and it's a really special practice because we don't have residents. Hmm. So we have midwives midwives and attendings. So when you come to our hospital, regardless of what you come for, if you're pregnant, you get one of us. Okay. So we do everything from, you know, we can, somebody can come in with a fever, and it could be malaria. It could be 
choreo, it could be the flu, or somebody can come in with ruptured membranes. So we do wow. the um, intake for everybody, and then we manage the obstetrical option, uh, portion of it, while in, and then the docs really take care of the medical part of it. Um, so it's a really great co-management type of situation that a lot of places uh, miss I, out on. Yeah, and I and I think in the U.S. I haven't even really heard of that model. That's, it's so unique and rare, both for there to really be this shared perspective on, you know, on the pro- providing care to women, but also for that to have expanded, expanded and brought into the larger population, not yeah. just, you know, pregnant women. So how did that come to be in that setting? Well, um, this, this start, our service started, we just had our 40th anniversary. Um, and we started with one midwife who had that as a vision mm-hmm. and she started the service. And there's actually a couple of model of other services now modeled on our service, but we were pretty much the first of the type. Okay. Um, and it's, we have in within uh, within the city hospital system. We are known that we have the, the one of this. We're one of the safest places to have a baby, and we've won all these awards because of safety. Interesting. So it's really it's really a special place. And I always thought because my background originally was nursing and labor and delivery mm-hmm. in the city hospital system, um, and then I had the very special joy of working at this wonderful birth center while I was in midwifery school for three years. And I thought that okay, this is my life now. Right. This is what I'm going to do. I'm out of the hospital. I'm going to yeah. be out of hospital. I'll get my experience for two years back in the hospital as a midwife and then I'm going to do home birth and I'm going to do birth center but then I started here and I was stuck there's such a place for midwives in the in the high risk um, hospital setting these women are going to be there and it's such a joy to be able to make that experience for them as best as possible whatever it can whatever little bit we can do that's really powerful because yeah. I think that we talk so much about, you know, the midwifery model of care and how we really see that as, you know, that and the obstetric model really need to be complementary mm-hmm. and how, you know, midwives should work with lowest, r- low-risk women and OB should work with high-risk women. And, and really using that language is... It's selling everybody short. Yeah, so th- absolutely. This is a great example of that. I do. I first assist on cesarean sections on my patients who end up needing it. I mm. uh, manage. I co-manage diabetics. I see diabetics in the clinic um, in conjunction with one of my docs. We do. Yeah. Um, I deliver. We manage all the preeclamptics. Our patients. We see every person who's having a baby on our unit has midwifery care. Wow. That's really powerful. You must have great working relationships with the physicians in your practice. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And sometimes it's been... It's always great when they when they hire a physician that has had experience with midwives, but sometimes we get somebody right out of residency who hasn't. That is a little, a little bit shy. <laughs> so we midwife them through it. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we always tell them. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's been attendings that haven't worked out, and uh, there's attendings that if they stay, they, they're on board. Yeah, they've bought into this model. They uh-huh. understand that it works. They understand that this benefits your patient population. And once they really get the fact that we are licensed licensed practitioners that they don't have to stay up for. Like yeah. that's a big thing. We're not residents. You don't have to you don't have to be over my back. You don't have to watch me. You have to trust me. And then it's also trust building. Like I don't if they're in a lot of my births in the beginning, even though I probably delivered a hell of a lot more babies than they have. Right. <laughs> if they're in a lot of my births, I'm just like, cool, once you know that I'm okay yeah. and I don't fight them on it. And I'm just like, oh, I just hope you trust me soon. And then, you know, yeah. they joke around with them. And once then, and then eventually they do and they back off and they give me my space back again. Yeah. And it's great. Like, I just have a lot of um, new midwives who've never worked anyplace else. And because I was in nursing before, I did, and I worked, like, I did session in nursing all different places per diem. So I know the lay of the land in New York City and what to expect. And, yeah. And a lot of times when our midwives are 
like especially new midwives, they get really frustrated because they want that wonderful, you know, Varney midwifery, mm-hmm. like what we expect to be able to do in private practice. And yep. our, our reality is, I'm like, if you want to care for the women that you want to care for, which mm-hmm. are the women that are, are on Medicaid or don't have any Medicaid. Or marginalized. Yes, absolutely. Yep. This is going, this is the best of the best. Like this is yep. the best case scenario where we can be involved. Um, yep. And still take care of the population that you want to take care of. Right. Well, it's it's really about you know meeting that need. And of course, yes, like you said, you you know you had that birth center experience where you're, you know, you're in this environment where you're you're able to just kind of have this this very you know beautiful like continuous model of care. Like it, it's you know there's so much about that that is rewarding and everybody fulfilling. should have that experience. Everyone should have that experience. And yet, th- that those are not the only women that need your care. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. We're not going. We're not only going to be able to take care of the one who can afford that kind of care. Right. Yeah. The people that are choosing that because that represents their values, or because it's you know a, a, something that they can can afford. Right. And yeah. we always there. We do know the. Um, and we're also so. I think any one of our of our staff are not the kind of midwives who will like keep you in our service at any cost. We do know the home birth midwives who do take Medicaid. We do yeah. know the the home birth midwives or the birth centers that will work with the patient within the population. Right. So when we know we have a patient who really would benefit from that care, yeah. we will kind of not necessarily unbeknownst to our uh, to our superiors, but we'll really try yeah. to make sure that they have the kind of care that they want. Yeah. And we've also then in my hospital we've established now that like doulas don't count as the set because we are like two people no switching as far as as visitors. Sure. Yeah. kind of role um, but like the doula doesn't count as that that one of those people anymore yeah, which is great so we're great. always trying to like work move forward all of our postpartum rooms are now single so that the one mm-hmm. partner can stay 24 hours which is yeah. new for us we are now breastfeeding friendly so we're really trying to it's funny because they're seeing it as progression meanwhile that's what we stand for the whole entire time right yeah so in that setting as a midwife and as someone who you know aligns with these these certain values in terms of you know family centered care like you know being breastfeeding friendly um you know i'm sure you you're you have a goal of you know reducing cesarean rates Absolutely. all of those kinds of things how do you in in that setting obviously considering you know socioeconomic factors considering you know the the medicaid piece considering um everything that you're sharing in this practice what are some of the ways that you really work to to emphasize and prioritize those goals um, well, one was getting getting the docs on board. Mm-hmm. You have to, we have to get the docs on board. And breastfeeding friendly was one of the best things that we have done. And I think it really came from a financial thing because the the our doctors knew that the that we would you know the money that we would get the um, more grants that we would get because we were breastfeeding friendly. Yeah. So that helped them buy on board. But I have to say that once they were our biggest cheerleaders, they were the ones that really jumped on board, which was great. Yeah. Um, so getting the doctors on board for that the the Primary section rate has been an issue because yeah. it tends to be, especially in New York City, where it's a very litigious um, environment. Yeah. That um, whenever there's any type of outcome that's not favorable, it tends to almost swing in the other direction and get right. pretty conservative. People, yeah, people get they react really strongly. They react very strongly, understandably yep. so, because it's not done out of you know trying to. And our it's not that they're trying to get back to clinic to be. They don't not sectioning because they need to get someplace else. We're here. We're hospitalists. We're there no matter what. Yeah. It really is fear. It's really wanting to do best by the patient. There, I think sometimes yeah. they're always trying to treat the patient that had the bad outcome like make it better for them I'm like well that's done guys we have yeah. to kind of move forward yeah it's almost you can't ignore women women's history of, of course that has a huge role in the care that they receive and yet on some level 
especially even on like an emotional and cognitive level, like we kind of have to diffuse those past experiences to be able on, even as like, even in someone providing care to be able to even just take a position of, of faith that, you know, this is, that this is, no, that this yeah. is normal. This is yeah. not the same lady we had last week. You know, things yeah. really are okay. And then yeah. it's again, keeping calm. And I always jokingly say midwifing them through it, pulling the tracing out, being respectful of the fact that you know they may be uh, afraid or they or they have whatever experience before and just working through with at the beginning of every shift going through the tracing with them showing them all the reasons why this is really okay that we're continuing and we're not sectioning her yeah. telling you just being just really making it a team as much as possible I yeah. think makes a very big difference when we try to like compartmentalize ourselves too much that has not been in our favor that right. then they think it's kind of an us against them mentality for sure um but once we have tried to really work together it it's been it's been it, it definitely helps yeah that I think that makes a huge difference you know it, I'm I'm not a midwife I'm a doula and I I feel like whenever I'm in a situation where you know things do get stressful and there are different options on the table and you know whether it's an emergency or not there's there's so there's there's so many benefits to everyone involved in the situation to really be able to to see us as a team like we are we are all here for the same exact goal and that is to support this woman in her journey and and yes sometimes that looks like you know interventions that maybe you know we don't the mother doesn't want we you know we may not want but where how do we work together to really achieve what we need to achieve I really think that's the role of the midwife as stressful it is you're uh, my goal always my role is always to make people happy I'm making sure that the patient is getting as much as she needs I'm making sure that my doc isn't having a heart attack and yeah. concern I'm worried I'm making sure that my nurse isn't overworked because she has mm-hmm. three patients and now I'm telling her to do intermittent monitoring and yeah. that's just it's a lot so my my role is just to make sure that you know the patient understands that yeah you know something we're going to get intermittent monitoring but how would you give me that hep, hep lock so we can kind of like almost balance it out yeah. My, you know, if we have a hip lock in, my doc's going to back off a little bit, and then maybe we can do something else. So this is my entire day sometimes, just, just yeah. making sure, pulling out the policy, showing the nurse, no, really, this is okay. We are allowed to do this, and I'm going to help you with it. Yeah. It's making sure that the doctor will see, she, I'm pulling the tracing, see how gorgeous this is, everything is fine, and it's exhausting. At the end yeah. of the day like that, it's exhausting. Because because then you, what you're doing is you're man, you're not managing care of, of the woman. You're managing, like, all of these logistics and you're sort of on some level babysitting mm-hmm. all of these different you know components of your staff that that you're just constantly you know working and efforting and to keep everyone egos. and stroking egos and you know like reassuring and doing all of this to keep everyone on that same page that's got to be so exhausting it is but then the next time though when you have that a similar experience with that same doc again most of the time it's a they little smoother. Yeah. yeah and then I'm always you know I'm always trying to my friends tell me that I should be a spin doctor like at the end of the birth I always make sure that I bring the doc in and just you know tell the have make sure, you know just show just the doc show, what what they yeah. have and the patient is so grateful. Yeah. And I always tell them afterwards I'm like I wouldn't have had this if it wasn't you on. And then sometimes it's true some of the other docs wouldn't you know wouldn't yeah. be down wouldn't be on board. So it's a lot of ego and some people think that it's over the top that it's not necessary that but yeah. I have had 16 years of able to the ability to give women that care Mm -hmm. and is it annoying should we have to do it no but unfortunately that in in certain situations it's our reality yeah and whatever I can do to make that woman in a city hospital 
that would usually be strapped down all the time with the IV all the time, with continuous yeah. fetal monitoring all the time. Um, whatever I can do, the littlest bits to make the experience as normal for possible for her is what I'm going to do. Yeah. So the setting that you are working in is, you know, what you offer to women and and the values that you bring to to those relationships do you are you really often kind of educating and coaching women on why that's valuable to them i assume that not too many people that come to that inner city hospital are necessarily seeking a midwifery model of care or all. looking for you know significant support in this journey it's it's a it's a different story than that my patients call me doctor all the time they don't really and all the time yeah. i'm like i'm a midwife oh i see that daughter <laughs> I'm yeah. like, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, a lot of, the, well, it depends. Some of our women are coming from other countries where they've received midwifery management. Okay. And, but just because that's what they have and they delivered at home yeah. and now they're coming for better care, supposedly, right. which I, <laughs> sometimes I wonder. Yeah. Um, and so when you come to my hospital, you get a midwife. Yeah. If you're normal, you get a midwife. Even yeah. some of the abnormals, you get a midwife. And that's just if you, if that's, most of the patients coming to our hospital don't even realize that that's what they're getting, yeah. as you said. Um, and yeah, we absolutely talk to them. We have fantastic childbirth education, really right. great that's childbirth awesome. education. Um, our childbirth educator is, is one of our midwives who does it in English. We alternate in the other month, month is in Spanish. Okay. So, um, and they go through, it's really beautiful. I really have to say that I've taken the class with them before and I've seen classes on the outside and I think it's better than some of the things people pay for. Wow. So it's free. That's great. Um, and so, and then after their first class, and we talk about things as they're going, they take their first class around 28 weeks or so. Mm -hmm. um, and then they start asking these questions. It's so much fun to watch them start to open their minds and see what's normal and see what's yeah. possible in our hospital. And a lot of our patients are, we've delivered their mothers. Like they're, the mothers yeah. are bringing their daughters to us or they're bringing their sister or their mm -hmm. cousin. Um, and also because it's a midwifery staff that happens to be all women in our situation, um, we have a lot of Bengali and Yemeni patients, okay. patients from Yemen, so they want female providers. So they come to yes. us specifically for that as well. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and then we yeah. just kind of open it up, and what, and I always ask them, I'm like, what is your idea of birth? Like, what do you want out of delivery? Because if somebody wants an epidural, give them an epidural. Whatever it's going to make them happy yeah. about their birth experience. Yeah. So... Does a significant portion of your patient population participate in prenatal care and childbirth education? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Is there much of a component of, you know, like emergency or last minute obstetric or, you know? Yes, absolutely. Like, we'll yeah. have patients come in but recently, not re not within the last year or so. We had a woman, a young woman come in, 16 years old in her high school uniform, fully dilated with her mother walking wow. behind her. And she just was saying to everybody, like, I drop her off, I pick her up. To the next person, I drop her off, I pick her up. Mm. It's concealed pregnancy. Mom had no idea, you know, when her daughter became pregnant or who wow. she was even dating. So we do get those sometimes, yeah. patients like that. Um, it's We don't see, it's a pretty family-centered neighborhood. Okay. Um, we, in the... We go through bouts where we have patients that come in without any prenatal care, um, but not as much as the patients. We have more often patients coming from other countries at 36 yeah. weeks, 38 weeks with no care, at least in the United States. Right. That's a that's a big one. We do have yeah. that a lot. 
yeah, that immigrant population. Huge immigrant yeah. population, huge um, West African population, okay. absolutely. Yeah, Has, is that something you've seen shift? I, I'd be very interested to know, like, you've been a midwife for, you said, 16 years, mm-hmm. right? Have you been in this particular hospital setting that whole yeah, time? my first Most, job, yeah. 2001, I, got, I was hired there. Wow. But prior to that, I was labor and delivery nurse for about six years okay. in another city hospital. Okay. So what would you say, you know, within your own setting, but also potentially on a larger scale, what would you say you've seen change most in this decade and a half in midwifery? Um, I really think it's a pendulum. It's with, it swings back and forth. Yeah. Um, we'll start out with, with um, we we had, when I first started in the 90s, there was a l- very large drug population. Um, mm-hmm. I was working also in, um, in Spanish Harlem area. Um, and so we did have a lot of drug users at that point yeah. um, coming in and, and uh, delivering. And then it kind of just, we don't really see that much right now. It goes back and forth. And then when policies change about uh, with drug uh, assistance, yeah, then we'll get more drug users again. But then when we have a um, we have more support for for people with addictions, then we have less drug users. So we kind of see that yeah. kind of sway back and forth. Yeah, um, yeah. And same thing with psychiatric patients. Sometimes mm. when we have more, there's more care for psychiatric patients. We have less acute care issues right. versus patients that are really well managed. Yeah. Yeah. And in your own practice at this, at this hospital, you know, even thinking about those care, you know, your relationships with the physician mm-hmm. staff and, and kind of, you know, the, the continual effort that it takes to both educate them and include them in, you know, in this process of really, really supporting women, what would you say has been the biggest struggle and the thing that you would like to see change the most? Um, the biggest struggle is always who is their boss. Mm. who is in charge um, over them at the time. Um, we've had chair people, right now I think we're in a pretty good space, um, but we've had chair people in the past that have told them that their job is to rein us in mm. um, or to have more control over the midwives. Yeah. Um, and those, happily, those chair people are no longer in service, but it's heartbreaking. It's, it gives the, right, right away when, they, when the physicians come in, it's kind of like with this, we're going to be in control. You're going to listen to me kind of stuff. And that is just exhausting and terrible. And, but we just kind of, unfortunately work, we, we have to sometimes write it out because the more we fight, the more it yeah. depends upon the, it depends on the situation right now. I have to say it's pretty good. Our current vice chair is a very strong individual, but mm-hmm. she supports us like you can't even imagine. And that's, yeah. do we like all the things she says now? Nah. Yeah. <laughs> we definitely would like to change some of the policies and procedures yeah. absolutely but I have to say that the support the message is good and that yeah. makes sure that it's makes general, it easier it makes it much yeah. easier to work because you know that you're supported you know that no matter what happens she will have your back yeah that general culture of positivity and support 100% and, and belief in this model of care Absol- that which is, is 100% yeah right now they're doing like they're um, trying to decrease primary c-section rate yeah um, they're you know it's, what do you think they're what do you think their approach to that is and and do you think that you know, looking looking at it from your perspective and what you know to be factors in decreasing primary C-section rate, do you feel like the approach they're taking is is and will be effective in that? Not yet. <laughs> right. It's it's so many inductions. It's, yeah. They need to limit the inductions. Once yeah. we start limiting the inductions, then we can talk about decreasing primary C-section yeah. rate. And, and is that a conversation that's being had? Like, do you and others in your practice have a voice to say, like, actually, this is what we see... And this this would be the thing that would make a difference. We definitely have a voice. I don't know how much we're being heard, mm-hmm. um, but the, we absolutely have the ability to meet with her at any time. And she'll yeah. she's very open to listening to us. But she's again a very strong personality, and um, 
again, it's we. It's just it, the biggest problem is is how litigious the environment is. Yeah, and if you know we get hit with a lawsuit, it's devastating for us, right. and it does definitely happen. So they're always you. You don't get you don't get sued for a section most of the time. Right. Um, which yeah, which is kind of ironic. It is. It really yeah. is. Although you know that that could change. We'll see if yeah. you know with, if women start suing for that. But right now in our in our area, it, we don't. Right. So it, that's the hard that's the hard thing about it. It always yeah. comes down to the, it comes back to the lawsuits. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a it's such a crazy environment. I love what you said about like this is you know this is where this is where the work is like, you know, yes, it would be fun to be a, you know, home birth midwife in the countryside. Absolutely. But you know, this I've is been really offered great jobs in private practices. And like, yeah. I could be having like the shishi, but I could be doing so much better than I am. But this is where the work is. This yeah. is where the women need us. And it's, yeah. I get such a huge amount of joy from that every single day. Yeah. That's so powerful. Yeah. And to just be able to stay in that space, even, even when the going is really rough. Um, I commend you for that. Thank yeah. you for the work you do. Thanks. I yeah. love being able to do, pre- I do prenatal care probably every day in at least four or five different languages. Mm. And I just, just love that. And I yeah. learned so much from them and so many things I learned from them, I can pass on to some of my other patients yeah. and it's a, it's a fun place to yeah. be. What do you think the, you know, the top one or two things that you have learned that you would share with any woman, you know, regardless of their, um, you know, ethnic background or socioeconomic status or, you know, geographic location, if there's something that you would share with any woman who is on their motherhood journey, maybe pregnant now or um, considering becoming a mother, what would you share? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. Uh, yeah, no, it's, I just think too, I really love the, um, the family dynamic of some of our, the patients, just the just to keep everybody close. I love how sometimes some of our patients have 10 people in, in a home, but that's really could be wonderful. And if you may yeah. not have the physicality of having 10 people in your home, your circle should be that big. When somebody comes and make, make friends with people in your, in your building, make friends, like make your own circle so that way you have people around you because the more people you have around you, the better your pregnancy is going to be. I really believe the more joy you find in that, the more people who are helping you, um, and just to be open to that care. Like I love yeah. my when my patients have their mother-in-laws and mothers and aunts, and they're being totally babied, and they complain about it, but with a huge smile on their face. Right. That is so powerful and so true because I think that you know we are in a culture now where there's so much hesitancy around even showing support right. or you know asking someone how they're doing in their pregnancy or potentially you know I know there's there's so much unsolicited advice that happens but you know I I personally would rather err on the side of having people in my life that are showing up and supporting me and sometimes they're annoying and sometimes mm-hmm. I have to say hey that's yeah, too far absolutely. I'd rather that than have you know just a, an isolated vacuum and I think that you know we're we benefit so much like you said from those really really um intimate circles and from from widening those mm-hmm. as much as we as much as we can and I always tell them I said and if anybody's bugging you too much just tell them my midwife says I'm perfect right and <laughs> yeah <laughs> and we, that's always their line we do the same thing yeah. we're like you, it's it's totally fine yeah. to scapegoat it's totally fine to say like my midwife said my doula said mm-hmm. you know my therapist said my coach said like you can you can you can say that like yeah, if you really absolutely. need a little help drawing a line just my midwife says I'm perfect yeah <laughs> it's awesome <laughs> well thank you so much for sharing oh, Denise it's really really wonderful this. to hear just your unique perspective and experience in midwifery over the last couple decades and we're so grateful for the work that you do thank you so much yeah, it's really thanks. nice to meet you you too
we're still here at ACNM meeting amazing midwives and hoping to bring stories to you. So do you mind go ahead and introduce yourself? Sure. Thank you. Um, my name is Sharon Holly, and I'm a certified nurse midwife. I've been a certified nurse midwife since 1997. I graduated from the University of Alabama, Birmingham back in 1996, and they closed the program, unfortunately, subsequently since. But um, I've been doing a lot of work, you know, around various different parts of the country. So I love to talk about midwifery. Yeah. <laughs> what, what made you kind of make the decision to become a midwife originally? Uh, so my original, actually, introduction to midwifery, mm -hmm. I had my first child in Texas. Mm -hmm. And they um, actually is through a military hospital. They didn't use midwives at all. Mm-hmm. And our second child I had when we were over in uh, the United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. We used their traditional midwife service that they have through the national health system. Mm -hmm. And the experience was so completely different for me. It felt very individualized. It felt like I got a lot more education versus just sort of being run through as if I was on a uh, assembly line, if mm -hmm. you will. And that isn't when I wanted to become a midwife actually but that was my first exposure mm -hmm. and you know over there they have a whole system that's really set up where midwives are the main obstetrical providers mm -hmm. there's a lot more of them than there are the physicians in obstetrics mm -hmm. and the reason for that is most women are normal mm -hmm. um, so the physicians are really used to take care of people who have higher risk factors or need surgery, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So the British system is set up a little bit differently. And I just came back to the United States as a military dependent. And I thought, you know, what is this midwife stuff? I, I experienced it, but I don't know anything about it. And so I actually read a book called A Midwife Story by Penny Simpkin. Mm -hmm. And um, it changed my life. It was about uh, working with Amish community in Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. and I thought, ah, this is what I want to do. Mm -hmm. So at that time, um, I talked with various different types of midwives, and I decided that I would go back to school and become a nurse and then apply for midwifery school, and that's exactly what I did. So I went and got my bachelor's degree in nursing. I worked a little while in a labor and delivery unit in Birmingham, Alabama, Brookwood Hospital, and um, when I went back to get my master's degree, I, uh, as I said before, I went to University of Alabama, Birmingham. And when I graduated, I ended up going and working in a small um, practice that was in Fayetteville, Tennessee. Okay. It's a very, very rural area, mm -hmm. very small town. And there was a obstetrician, well, actually, she was actually family practice with a obstetrical training. Mm -hmm. She'd been there for like 30 years. So she was delivering grandchildren of people she'd originally delivered, mm -hmm. you know. Plus she took care of them, you know, throughout their life. Yeah, I feel like that's still, still such a special model. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And that was a very unique experience to be exposed to. Mm -hmm. And I worked a little while in um, a practice in uh, Florence, Alabama, working with a large OBGYN group. I was their first midwife. Um, first exposure to midwifery in the area, mm -hmm. first in the hospital. Um, and from there, I went to Tennessee, started working in a place called Jackson, Tennessee, at um, a place that served mainly the um, 
women in the community who didn't have private health insurance. Okay. You know, it was a hospital-based practice. And um, and then I worked in Nashville, Tennessee at uh, Vanderbilt. And I was actually hired in originally to work clinically in their practice. And then I started teaching in their program, their midwifery program. And I became a practice manager for the School of Nursing faculty practice. Oh, awesome. So a huge variety of experience. Huge. And um, moved from there one more place, and that's uh, Chief of the Division of Midwifery in um, Bay State Medical Center in Springfield, Massachusetts. And so you can see, like I said, I've had a little bit of a variety. So I can I talk to you about a lot of things, if yeah, you want. Yeah, what are some differences between maybe doing rural, more rural practice? What's something unique that you found in doing that? Rural practice is um, interesting because, you know, you're dealing with issues like how do people even get to the appointment and mm -hmm. transportation. People have very tight-knit communities, and as somebody who's an outsider, it's hard to become an insider. Mm -hmm. And But on the other hand, you know, you go to the local store and you're like family. They'll say, yeah. oh, hi, here's all the kids. And, you know, if you... If you really want to be part of a community, that's a great way to do it, is work mm -hmm. in a rural setting. And the pace of life is a lot different than a busy city practice. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we would we would be busy in our practice, but at the same time, you could sit and talk to people. Yeah. And now you're obviously in a much larger area, mm -hmm. serving a lot more women. What's the difference in kind of being in the busy practice you're at now? Well, the... What I actually do is I actually oversee a whole division of midwives. Okay. And so there's three different practices that I oversee plus an educational program. So it's got a lot You're midwifing going on. the midwives now. Exactly what I say. Yes. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. Oh. The thing that um, I find, it doesn't even matter where you're practicing, mm -hmm. um, whether it's a big city or whether it's a practice that's taking care of patients who are highly educated and well-insured versus people who are new to our country and trying to figure out even how the system works. Yeah. You know, being a midwife, maybe the needs of the community are different, mm -hmm. but they all still want somebody to help answer questions, mm -hmm. give them information so they can make informed decisions, mm -hmm. give them choice. You know, so women are women. Mm-hmm. I really believe that, and I think that, you know, those themes of listening and helping with informed choice, like you said, not only, like, change or don't change from community to community, I think that's a that's a core value that we have in as midwives and women have for themselves, but also just kind of that, that ability to give that space, whatever the space might look like. Um, is there anything in your kind of evolution as a midwife that you have become really passionate about specifically? Well, like it does change. Maternal, it's yeah. sort of like, you know, seasons. So it depends on what year you ask mm -hmm. me. Right now, my big concern is the um, disparity between outcomes with various different types of populations that are mm -hmm. served, specifically the African-American community. Um, but I also am very concerned about our uh, patients who... Uh, have a hard time accessing things like mental health care mm -hmm. and even basic things like primary care. Mm -hmm. So trying to build some networks and access to that is sort of where I'm focusing at the moment. Yeah, I feel like so often 
we've gotten all these great tools now to screen, but then what? Then what? Yeah, we're exactly asking right. asking the right questions, and women are women are becoming more aware of. I think you know, not 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 a broad stroke, but I think it is more prevalent that people understand that postpartum depression is is there, is there, and that anyone may have postpartum depression, um, no matter if their socioeconomic status or race or background or intellect. I think it used to be, oh, only certain types of people get this, have this problem. Now I feel like more women are open to the fact that all women can have postpartum depression and then we do these screens and we get this information. But I, I am very passionate about this because my DMP is in birth trauma, my project. So I feel like what happens then is we just need that follow-up. We need to find a way to connect people with the right partners, whether that's in our community, another practitioner, or even within our own system. Are we asking ourselves, what are we available to? What is something that's open to midwives to actually intervene? Yeah, and um, since you talk about birth trauma, mm-hmm. um, one of the things, not that I have personally done anything about, but an observation I've made mm-hmm. in my time of practice And it seems to me that we're seeing many more women with anxiety issues. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I kind of don't really know where some of it comes from. Mm -hmm. But my feeling is that somehow in our society, whether it's through social media or something else, we've sort of transitioned to this place where women judge themselves on, I didn't have the perfect birth I thought I should Mm -hmm. have. I had envisioned it this way and it didn't turn out that way or I had an experience that I find traumatic. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, as somebody who provides care, maybe I don't see it as traumatic, but mm-hmm. they do. They perceive it that way. Right. And um, that worries me a lot because five years ago, I didn't see that as much. And so I don't know what's changed, but something definitely has. And people are coming in with more anxiety to begin mm-hmm. with. Mm-hmm. So I do think that that's something we're going to have to address. Mm-hmm. I think as our society has more anxiety going on, of course we're seeing it. But, you know, now when I look on problem lists, nine times out of ten it seems to be on there as anxiety, depression. And that really troubles me. Yeah, and I, I think we then kind of walk that line where it's like, did we not know because people didn't have the language? Or now do we have so much language that it's actually kind of become cumbersome, like you're saying, in a sense of how do we evaluate then, like, on the spectrum where you are with anxiety, if you self-identify as being high high anxiety. So then, you know, I I think about this a lot, you know, just because versus Melissa, my partner in this podcast, I am a provider. So I'm like, I think of it on that scale as well, where you kind of go self-identified anxiety, self-identified trauma still needs an avenue to be expressed, but it might look different than someone who has a clinical diagnosis or a different, but yeah, I really ask myself those questions too. Are we creating our own anxiety? had a great conversation with another midwife about shame that she feels like women did not, women have carried shame for all different kinds of reasons throughout our history. However, now more than ever, she feels like women are ashamed of things that happen to them in birth or decisions that they make, whether that's to get an epidural or to have a cesarean delivery or that this XYZ didn't go the way they had wanted or shame about not breastfeeding or shame, you know, whatever the shame, she's her thing she feels like is anxiety and shame. And so then you're dealing with that and there's just a whole other. Yeah. And, you know, when I was first midwife and even way before that, when I was personally a mother, mm-hmm. that never entered any conversations I had as mm-hmm. a, you know, I had a group of friends. We were all, yeah, close, you and, know, close mm-hmm. and having conversations about having kids and birth. And 
Um, it just wasn't part of the conversation the way it is now. Mm. And I think, you know, some of it stems from we want to empower ourselves, but at the same time, we're also in a situation where we're giving birth that we're not in control. Mm-hmm. And in so many things in our life, we have some control over now. Mm-hmm. But birth is not one of them. Our body does something and we have to respond to it. Mm-hmm. We don't control it. Yes, yeah, right? ab- absolutely. So. Like you can plan and you can prepare and you can believe. I think that's the biggest thing mm-hmm. is I feel like when speaking with women, it's it's not that you can't like invest and believe in yourself in the process of birth, but you cannot control it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. No, I think that's really, and maybe that's what it is, is that we are used to controlling down to every second of our day now and having access to all information at all times. And so when we have to actually submit ourselves to a very biological, natural process, it's nobody does well with it. The, the hand is still held so tightly to it. And sometimes there's um, times where we just have to be in the moment. Yeah. Birth is one of them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, you know, like, do you take a bunch of pictures? Do you, like, how do you process your moment? Mm-hmm. You know, are you watching the moment or you're being in the moment? Right. And being part of whatever your body is doing at that moment. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe you've never been through it before, but your body is doing this thing it knows to do. It knows mm-hmm. to have a baby. And, you know, are you going to flow with that or are you going to be scared of it? And, mm-hmm. you know, how you process that is going to also affect your labor experience. Hmm. So I think that's great advice. We always ask if there's advice you would give. I think that might be the best advice <laughs> for women out there. So thank you so much. I have some for the yes. dads. Yeah. Ooh, I like that. <laughs> Go ahead. Or partners. Yes. Um, yeah. So I actually did my doctoral work in uh, father's experience of childbirth. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. And people ask me about female partners, but um, I felt this is why I didn't study them particularly, because I felt I knew how women basically responded. Mm-hmm. I didn't know how men were responding. Yeah. But I think a lot of it still applies. Yeah. So when I say this, it really could apply to anybody who's with them as a support person. Mm-hmm. You know, you get a lot of questions from dads, like, what can I do? There's a little bit of anxiety, like, what's Where, my what's job? My rob? Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And what I find um, has helped them is understanding that they don't want really the focus on themselves. They mm-hmm. want it on the woman who's obviously <laughs> needing help, mm-hmm. but they want to be acknowledged. And it, they want to be understood that they're part of this dynamic family unit. Mm-hmm. And so I, I tell them this is their job. Literally, I have this conversation. Mm-hmm. Your job is to love her and to make her feel safe. Mm-hmm. That's it. Because if you allow her to feel loved and safe, that's going to release the oxytocin, which Mm -hmm. is going to help the labor process, Mm -hmm. and decrease the adrenaline, which stops the uh, labor process. You know, so most of the time I see their anxiety drop because they're like, oh, I don't have to deliver the baby. Good. Okay. (laughs) Or I I don't have to know exactly what to do with every contraction. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But I can do that. I know how to do that. Yeah. So no, I, I think that's really it. powerful. So how did you study that with your I, DMP? I did a survey okay. to ask their feelings at various points. Right. Okay. And uh, the other thing I've done is when I come into a room and I'm speaking with her about her options or anything that's going on with herself during labor, but this applies anywhere, mm-hmm. I will sit in a way where I'm facing both of them. Mm-hmm. And I the will turn and openness. look both of them. Yeah. I, I I remember distinctly one day realizing that I was really only looking at her, mm-hmm. but he's part of this day, mm-hmm. you know. 
he's part of this experience. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so once I kind of paid attention to that, like the dynamic in the room changes somehow. Yeah. And, you know, by having that moment of saying, you know, how can I, I'm thinking to myself, how can I help him help her? Mm -hmm. So I'm, men, I'm midwifing her mm -hmm. and I'm midwifing him yes. to help her. That's so great. Thanks. It's a powerful message. I think we can forget that. Like you said, you kind of walk in and have that tunnel vision of like, this, this is my patient, this is my person, but it's really the whole family, whatever that family looks like. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for sharing with us. Look Thank forward you. to sharing it. Thanks for asking. Thank you so much for listening today. This experience of being at ACNM for me personally was um, such an encouraging and life-giving experience. Um, if you can imagine, you know, studying English and picking up your first dictionary and seeing Webster on the front and being like, maybe one day I should meet this Webster. Uh, the reality is ACNM for me was an opportunity to meet so many women who are the Webster of Midwifery. Basically, they have spent their life and their careers building um, back into America the value of women giving women care through midwifery. Um, one thing as I was listening to these interviews that was a huge takeaway for me was something that Nell Tharp shared, which is she said, everything is about relationship and everything else can be managed. And I think that's such a theme as um, of our show and really kind of focusing on the transition to motherhood and what our relationships bring to us, what are they taking from us, and how can we ask more of our relationships so that we can be empowered. Thanks for listening. And, you know, as always, please go over to Instagram and follow us at motherbreath.co. That's really where we're building our community and interacting with women and sharing unique stories outside of the podcast. Um, and head over to our website to see what else we have going on. As you all know, Melissa is doing classes uh, for women who have experienced loss and will be launching traumatic birth classes that I'll be doing soon. So that's www.motherbreath.co. Thanks for tuning in and I hope you enjoyed. Thanks for listening to Mother Birth. And a special thanks to our editors, sponsors, and guests for this week's show. As always, this show is created by Lauren Melissa and is intended as general information that does not constitute or substitute medical advice of any kind. You should always consult with your primary care provider with respect to your medical care if you are pregnant, planning on becoming pregnant, or in the postpartum period. In this episode, we may use affiliate links to products and services that we know and trust. These are products we have personal experience with and believe that they will benefit our community. When you use these links, Mother Birth receives a small commission. What you pay for the product or service doesn't change at all. It's the same price. If we share something that includes a discount code, we may still receive an affiliate commission without affecting the discount offered to you. Thank you for supporting our show.